I'm not sure if y'all know this. You probably don't pay that close of attention. But when I preach, I always try to go about 35 minutes, give or take. I don't know how I came to that conclusion. It's not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't tell us how long we ought to preach. But at some point, it just made sense. It just felt right to go about 35 minutes. Well, one thing I figured out, though, over the course of a few years at Harvest, coming up at about the 25-minute mark is when y'all's tummies get to rumbling, okay? Mine, too. That Savannah chopped salad at McAllister starts calling our name, and uh, we get hungry, and that's to be expected. This is very natural. We're human beings. Around lunchtime, we get hungry. But there's there's another level to hunger that I try my best to spare y'all from on a Sunday morning. It happens to a lot of us when maybe we get to about an hour after our normal level of hunger, where I'm not just hungry anymore, I get what? Angry. <laughs> I get hangry. Amen. And y'all, if you don't know what it is to be hangry, that's the point at which you get so hungry you just want to start hurting somebody. You just want to start smashing things. Uh, Snickers made a whole line of commercials about this. You're not you when you're hungry, so grab a Snickers, right? Now, I hate to tell on myself here, but I wonder if maybe we got it a little backward. Um, What if when I'm really hungry, that's the real me coming out? Not some false version, some lesser version of me, but if I get really hangry, maybe there's something about my heart that's true that's then coming out in my selfishness, in my uh, short temper, in my unkindness toward others. Maybe that's some of the real Kyle, in fact. Well, y'all, as we open up to Exodus 16 today, that's what we see. The people of Israel get hungry, and then some, they get hangry, and they act out in such a way that for us is going to be appalling. But we're meant to read Exodus 16. Really, the whole, the whole narrative is for us supposed to be kind of like a mirror. What happens to God's people when they get hungry is really a testimony about the human heart. It's not just Israel's problem, it's everybody's problem. We're going to see that today, and hopefully in a way that, we, that, that resonates with us, because this is the story of us, not just them. Now, context, I think, helps us to understand what's, uh, what's happening to this point. Uh, so if you remember, if you're familiar with Exodus, or if you've been with us over these weeks, it was over 400 years that the people of Israel were enslaved under the oppressive hand of Egypt. But God steps in and makes a promise to rescue His people. He's heard their cry, and He has come down to save them. And through the ministry of a man named Moses, the Lord does exactly as He says. He miraculously judges Egypt and grants saving mercy to Israel. He brings them out of the land of slavery, through the Red Sea, And now the Egyptian threat is no more. The Egyptian army has been destroyed in the sea. Then begins the journey to the the abundant land of God's promise, the place that God promised to, to bring his people after the exodus, after the escape from Egypt. Now, in some sense, the story really begins. And this is something that we've we've tried to touch on in our preaching of the last several weeks. God said from the beginning that his goal for Israel was bigger than simply getting them out of slavery. More than only setting them free, God's plan was to redeem Israel, to be his set-apart people on the earth. 
And so what comes now, the reason the book of Exodus doesn't end in chapters 14 and 15 after the Red Sea is because in many ways the work is, is just beginning. This is God's all-important work now of sanctifying his people, turning them more and more into a nation that reflects his glory to the world. And that is like a mirror for us. Because what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a church, we are God's redeemed people. We are saved by his mercy. We're set free from our slavery to sin. And now we are being sanctified. You and I, by faith in Jesus Christ, we are being formed by God's spirit. Sometimes very painfully. Sometimes against our desire. We prefer it to be easy. We prefer to maintain our own ambitions and delights and desires, but more and more God is shaping us into the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The thing that we ought to want more than anything else, that's what God is doing. And y'all, he couldn't do for us anything better. There's nothing God holds out. He's doing the very best thing in saving us and making us like Christ. But see, y'all, just as it is with Israel, we tend to make this awfully hard on ourselves. And so what we see in Exodus 16, y'all hold it up like a mirror, okay, so that we can see ourselves in it too. Look with me at chapter 16, verse 1. Let's see how this narrative plays out now. Having been rescued from slavery, then they, the Israelites, set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. Stop right there. This is what we call a tip-off. The wilderness of sin which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after the, their departure from the land of Egypt. It's only been about a month. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Uh, before we rush to judgment, it's important that we acknowledge that the people really were hungry. This isn't their imagination. Just as we saw last week when Evan preached from chapter 15, they had been three days in the wilderness without water and they were thirsty and therefore God gave them water to drink. Now they're hungry, and it's a legitimate hunger. Y'all, given enough time without food, this is going to become a life and death issue. This is serious. But we're also meant to recognize, and moreover, we're meant to see what their hunger reveals about them beneath the surface. Because the real Israel's coming out right here. Look, at, look again at verse 3 and what they say. In their hunger, the people say, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. Translation, it would have been better if God had killed us back in Egypt. Better for God to have killed us than to rescue us. This is about a month, y'all. After Israel witnessed God's miracles in the land of Egypt, the plagues that set them free, the smell of the seawater is still in their nostrils from when God parted the Red Sea and allowed them to walk through it on the dry ground. 
I mean, these are miracles that defy description. These people had personally witnessed the saving hand of God in ways they could never even have dreamed up. But now, just I mean, a matter of weeks later, in their hunger, they come to wish that God's saving hand had just snuffed them out to begin with. That would have been better for them than this. And it gets worse. You look again at verse 3. Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. Y'all remember how good the food was back in Egypt? Y'all, this is an issue. This is a recurring issue. It comes up again. There's a special place for me in Numbers chapter 11. So a good while on into the future. It happens again. Let me, I'm going to read this for you from Numbers 11. The rabble who were among them, the Israelites, they had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. These people are actually romanticizing their slavery. They're talking about Egypt like it's the salad bar at Ruby Tuesdays. I mean, think about how irrational this is. Oh, sure, yeah, you know, the, the Egyptians, they used to beat us without mercy and drown our babies. But do you remember how good the onions were? <laughs> and at the end of verse 3, they turn to Moses and say, you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Moses, you haven't rescued us. You've doomed us. You did this on purpose to cause our extinction. Now, it's not difficult for us, all these many years later, sitting in comfortable chairs, stomachs mostly full. You know, it's not, it's not hard for us. When we read accounts like this, we instantly recognize how irrational, how foolish, how crazy it is for Israel to talk like this. I mean, do they, really, do they sincerely believe that they were better off in slavery? Are they really so short-sighted that they cannot recall and embrace the miraculous works of God that literally just happened? Every single day is the miraculous work of God. They're, they're witnessing it moment by moment. Are they that short-sighted? It's easy for us to see. But remember... This is an opportunity for us to look at the Scripture like a mirror. This is not just pick on Israel Day at church. This is a mirror for us. And if we're willing to dig into our own lives, our own hearts, it shouldn't be that difficult to see. The New Testament book of Hebrews actually does the hard work for us. In Hebrews, on multiple occasions, we're told to look at Israel, specifically Israel in the wilderness, and let them be for us a warning, an example of what not to be and what not to do. We're meant to learn from Israel's sin so that we might not provoke God as they did. That's exactly what Hebrews tells us. And here's the command that springs from that. This is Hebrews chapter 3. The warning goes like this. Take care, brethren, the Christian church, take care that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. 
but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's the threat that the New Testament warns us against as we consider Israel's sin in the wilderness. What we're dealing with daily today is in some sense the same as what Israel dealt with in Exodus 16. The potential for an unbelieving heart that is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now in the case of the Israelites, it comes to a head for them when they get hangry, right? But there's a larger point in view right here for us. It's not a matter of food and drink merely. It's anytime things go badly. Anytime Israel feels threatened, or they become afraid, or they experience lack, what is it then that comes out? See, like it or not, again, hold up the mirror here, like it or not, oftentimes when things go badly, that's when the real me comes out. Not the nice buttoned up me that I like for you to see, but the real me. This is when the truth about Israel comes to light. And unfortunately, this is a recurring theme. It happens all, we're going to see it week after week, basically, throughout Exodus and then again in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. This is Israel's way of life as they wander through the wilderness years. That when things get tough, they don't cry out to God in faith and dependence. Instead, they grumble and they turn ugly. They turn inward and they get nasty. They harden themselves against the Lord and against His servant Moses. And we can do the same thing. That when things go badly, if the real me is what comes out, it may be a me that I'm not all that comfortable with, that I wouldn't want you to know about. Because we may not cry out to God in faith and trust and dependence in that case. We may grumble the same as our forefathers did. Now, we're going to come back around and try to solve and resolve, resolve this thing a little bit in the end. But let's just sit in this for a while while we also consider how God responds. Because this is one of those situations where we would expect, perhaps, that God would respond with absolute severity. How dare you communicate such ingratitude after all that I've done for you? But we'd be surprised in that case in Exodus 16 how the Lord responds to a bunch of faithless grumbling with astonishing mercy. Look at verse 4. Chapter 16, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction." On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? Now this is God's promise not only to provide food for the people to meet their present and temporary need, 
but to grant the people a standing daily miracle. That's the promise here. And if you keep reading on through chapter 16, we see that this is the gift of what we call manna. The Israelites called it manna, which essentially is a term that means what is it? They weren't really sure what it was, but it was bread that came down from heaven that collected as dew on the ground, and each morning they could go outside and scoop the manna up off the ground and then take it and bake it or boil it and eat it. And this speaks to a larger point about God and His nature. That God was not going to rescue His people out of slavery only to let them starve and die in the wilderness. No. What they assumed about God's intentions was, couldn't be further from the truth. No, God provides. He's always provided. He continues to provide. But you notice there's a little uh, gift kind of built into this provision. And for the people, it may not have seemed to be a gift, but it is. It's the gift of testing. God says, I'm going to send bread that they'll collect daily, and this will be a test to see if they'll walk in my instruction. And so again, you read through Exodus 16, God gives two specific commands regarding the manna. The first is, do not gather more than you need and try to keep any of it overnight. Don't hoard it and save some for tomorrow morning, otherwise it will rot. It will breed worms, and that's exactly what happened. You can't keep it. And see, this, this command is a test to see if the people really trust in the Lord. Do I trust that tomorrow morning, when I walk outside, the manna will be there, just as it was this morning? Do I really trust that God provides, giving us this day our daily bread, as Jesus commanded us to pray? Do I really believe that? Because if I believe it, I'll, I'll find no need to hoard and try to keep any over. Right? It's a test. Then there was a second command that God says, when you gather up on Friday, gather up enough to hold over. Do keep it overnight. And in that case, it will not rot. Because Saturday is the Sabbath day. There's no collecting manna on the Sabbath because this is the day God has ordained for rest and worship. Do not go out and collect. What you collect on Friday will be enough for two days. Trust me. Obey me. Worship me. Now, y'all, we see, I hope, what's happening in this case. The Lord is pouring out mercy on an undeserving people. They do not deserve this kind of treatment. They deserve the opposite. They haven't earned anything that God is rewarding them. No, this is mercy. But he pours his mercy out in a way that also sanctifies them. God is not content merely to give them what they need. He's trying to make them into something they otherwise could never be. He's developing their faith and their trust moment by moment, day by day, meal by meal. God is calling his people into holiness and righteousness each step of the way. And I'll say this periodically, I think it's helpful at least for me to remind ourselves that for us and for Israel, God does not treat us like pets. In that case, if Israel were just God's pets, then he would feed them and allow them to simply do their own thing. But that's not what's happening here. And that's not how God treats you either. He is fathering them as his dear children. And if we know the difference... The difference makes for everything. That God is providing and protecting, yes, but He's also disciplining so as to cultivate in His people what is good. 
what is most fruitful, even if it hurts. Even if it forces them to rearrange their loves and their trusts and their affections. That their hearts might be turned to him and away from themselves. That's what any good parent would do for their children. Certainly, this is how God fathers us. So even if it hurts, God is committed to making them into something great. Now, when I said earlier that this scripture is for us a mirror, this goes in two different ways for us, right? It's a mirror into our own sin, yes. When things go badly, is there a part of me that comes out that I know is not of God? I think we can all confess that. But it's also a mirror in the, in the sense that God is showing us his goodness for us, his people, What God's gracious purposes are for Israel, we see in the mirror for us. Y'all, when we come to the story of the manna from heaven, that seems maybe very far removed from our present world and circumstance, yes. But if we make a beeline into the New Testament, to John chapter 6, we're going to see something in the words of Jesus that bridged the gap for us, and I hope would overwhelm us with gratitude. Jesus is having a conversation in John chapter 6. What he says just blows everybody away, and it still should for us as we read it. He's having a a conversation with the Jews, his kinsmen of his day, and he's telling them things that they can barely stomach. He says to them, you must believe in me as the one whom God has sent. And here's their response. They can't believe such a claim. And so they say to him, John 6 verse 30, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Y'all see how this connection works. Eat... Think about Israel here, Exodus 16. Each day, the nation of Israel gathered up this manna. They were bearing witness to the grace of God. This was not a crop that they tilled and grew and harvested. They were a traveling nomadic people. They had no crops. This was their sustenance. They're witnessing God's grace. This is a tangible expression. Each morning as I gather it, This is God's power. This is God's goodness, His mercy, His provision in giving life to us, His people. How wonderful. But then Jesus comes along and says, something far greater than manna has been given from heaven. And someone far greater than Moses has come to give it. There is a true bread from heaven that doesn't merely sustain physical life It gives eternal life. And not just for the nation of Israel, but for the world, for all the nations. And then Jesus lays it out as clear as day for us. He says, I am the bread of life. 
I'm the one come from heaven to give life to the world. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Contrary to what the Israelites felt when they got hungry, our deepest and most fundamental need in this world is not food or drink. Our deepest and greatest need is to be reconciled to God, to be delivered from sin and death. And Jesus says, I have come from heaven to meet you in your need, to fill you and satisfy you forever. Jesus is saying, I am the bread from heaven. I am God's provision so that the world might have life. He is our Savior. And if we understand the connection here at the deepest levels, just as the people did not plant and grow and harvest the manna, they simply received it as God's gift, so also the true bread which comes from heaven, Jesus Christ, He is granting us Himself. This is something we can't work for. We don't have to achieve. We couldn't even if we tried. He comes to give His life as a gift that we might receive Him by faith. We trust in Jesus Christ in the sufficiency of His death. Later on in John 6, Jesus says, the bread that has come from heaven is my flesh. I give life to the world by giving my flesh. I'm going to die. And in His death, He grants us life. It's the sufficiency of the cross and it's the glory of the resurrection. We look away from ourselves and we trust in Him. And in that sense, we come to Him and we never hunger again. We never thirst again. He is the all-sufficient Savior of our souls. Now, y'all, I want to try my best. I mentioned earlier we were going to come back around and try to resolve some things to tie a few threads together. So understand this, that Israel, what we're seeing in Exodus 16, they were a walking testimony of God's mercy and grace and provision and power. The very fact that they're even alive at all, let alone set free in spite of their inability to fight for themselves, just miracles at every turn. They are, they are a walking testimony of God's grace. And yet, when trials came, when things went bad, how quickly their hearts turned. How quickly they failed the tests of faith and provoked the Lord. And there's a whole lot buried in this. We'll touch on it as we walk through Exodus. You can read about it in Hebrews, as I mentioned. But at least one of the problems that Israel possessed was a false understanding of the trials that God was giving them. A false understanding about when things went bad, the purpose that perhaps God would have had for them under the surface. See, when they faced hunger or thirst or the threat of an enemy nation, whatever it was that scared them or forced them kind of humbly into the ground, the people of Israel immediately assumed that God had abandoned them. That was their first thought. Or even worse, that God had deceived them so as to destroy them. Why do their minds go first to that place rather than giving God any benefit of the doubt? Hebrews tells us, that they wandered in the Israel and they provoked God in, uh, in the wilderness. They provoked God to anger and they did not, this generation did not enter into the promised land because of their unbelief. They didn't really know him and therefore they didn't really trust him. 
And so naturally, when things went bad for Israel, the real them came out. And their assumptions were, God hates us. God has abandoned us. That was their view of trials. Trials mean God isn't for us. Now, how can we hope to be any different? If, if this is a mirror for us too, because I can assure you guys, you and me both, the difference is not in superior character. We shouldn't posture ourselves as better than the Israelites. The difference can only be the object of our faith. The difference can only be in that which occurs outside of us that gives rise to our trust in all circumstances. Y'all, when we trust in Jesus Christ, and we talk about this all the time, trust in Christ, I hope we understand that that was not a one-time event that got you saved, that got you kind of, you know, on the right track to heaven, and now you're making the rest up as you go. When we talk about trusting Jesus, we're talking about an entire life now of moment by moment, day by day, trust and dependence, an all-consuming new reality, an, an entirely new category of affection and devotion and ambition and life. Jesus changes everything for us. And so if we understand that, then we know when we talk about Jesus, he is our Savior, yes, but he is also our sanctifier. Jesus is the one who has made it his express goal to bring us into conformity with his character, with his heart, with his affections and ambitions and desires, so that we might live a life that glorifies God, walking in the steps of our Savior who came before us and who now indwells us. How's that for a high calling that you and I have been given? That's the goal. Not just that God would get us into heaven, but the goal of the, of the Father is to make us more and more like Jesus for the sake of His glory, both in this life and in the life to come. When we trust Him for that, then even our trials take on a new meaning and purpose. When things go bad, that's not an indicator of God's abandonment. It doesn't affect God's opinion of us somehow, or his closeness, or his presence, or any other such thing. Trials take on a new meaning as well. Because we worship a Savior who himself suffered all trial and died on the cross for us. In the Scripture it says that we will be glorified with him if we also suffer with him. With him. That's the new nature of what it is to suffer. We suffer with and in Christ. And so when, when Peter speaks of this, and we're, we're closing here. I'm running up on my 35, y'all. Okay. I know we're hungry. When Peter speaks of this, Peter speaks of the gospel of God's grace as being an eternal thing. That there is an inheritance uh, stored up in heaven for you because of Jesus. And listen to how we ought to respond to that promise. 1 Peter 1.6 In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that, purpose, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
when Jennifer and I, in, in recent years, have gone through some really hard things. First Peter. Trials are not meant to destroy your faith. Trials are designed to be the proving ground of faith. The sharpening and refining of faith. Y'all, trials more than any other experience in this life. Trials are the place where God's love and His grace and His promise and His power are most vivid and precious to us. They have to be. Corey Ten Boom said that. You'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And that's what trials are designed to produce. And the promise of the Scripture is this, that trials that are endured by faith, as opposed to Israel's response, response, which is, trial shows its head and we're out. Would that we had died back in Egypt, we'd have been better off. No, when trials are endured by faith, when we depend on the Lord, when we trust in the Lord, when we call out to the Lord, even if we lack the strength to even stand or speak audible words, when we turn to the Lord, the outcome of that kind of faith, the outcome of that kind of endurance, Peter says, is praise and glory and honor. Now, how can that be? How is it that our trials don't just crush us and leave us in the dust? How can they result in praise and glory and honor? Only if there is a God who sees them through and sees us through. Only if there is a God who is both powerful enough and loving enough to make it so. And this is the foundation on which we stand. That God works all things together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. And so y'all, this is not a rah-rah kind of sermon that we should gear up and go overcome all our trials in our own strength. I hope you know by now that's not going to happen. Not for Israel and not for us. But it is a point of recognition, and I hope a point of absolute gratitude and growing trust. When things go bad, the real me comes out, the real you. And it's okay for us to acknowledge this, that the real me is weak and sinful, to be sure. But if that same real me is clinging to Christ, if you are fixed on Him as the object of your faith, all your hope, all your trust, all your future is riding on Jesus Christ, then in that case, the Scripture says, your trials will only serve in the end to make you greater. Not less, not worse. You will overcome, Jesus says, because He has overcome the world. And so when our hope is fixed on the grace of Jesus Christ, come what may, we will prevail because He is alive. The one who died on the cross rose from the grave and therefore everything that God has promised us is a certain yes in Christ. Jonathan Edwards said, bring it on. That's, that's my, two, my uh, more recent translation of his uh, sermon from, I don't know, the 1600s. He said, come on, grave, in that case. My trust is in Christ. No matter what befalls me, no matter what scheme of the enemy, if my trust is in Christ, I'm certain to overcome because my Savior is alive. And so we respond to trials differently because the object of our faith 
is a living Savior. Y'all, I want to encourage us as we respond that if the Lord should, should bring about a response in you this morning, if you'd like to talk and pray, if you'd like to know what it is to have faith in Jesus Christ, the, the kind of faith that overcomes not only our sin, but also all darkness and evil, the eternal glory that we're promised in the Lord. If you want to know Him like that, then today's your opportunity. The Lord says, as long as it's still called today, we read that in Hebrews 3, let it be. We're going to have our pastors available to, to speak with you and pray with you. They'll be in the back of the room, Aaron and Evan. But however we choose to respond, whether we come back and pray during the song or not, my hope is this, that we would allow the Lord to, to, to reframe our minds and our hearts. When things go badly, that's when in some very peculiar sense, we are at our best. Not because of anything in us, but because of the greatness of our Savior who has died and has been raised again. If we are in Him, then no trial can overtake us because we have Jesus Christ and He is ours. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, this morning, uh, we, I pray we're, we're able to, to confess and admit that what happens in, in Exodus 16 is uh, maybe gets a little too close for our own comfort. We see Israel's heart. And Lord, we may be prone to rush to judgment, but I pray that we would see the mirror here, our own reflection, that uh, in so many ways I, am, I, I turn inward. In so many ways, Lord, I look out for myself as of my first priority. And I make just outrageous assumptions sometimes, Lord, that you're, you, you would somehow be against me because things have not gone my way. Lord, that's in my heart too. And I pray, Lord, that if we're willing this morning to confess it, even if just only on the inside, but Lord, if we confess, then we might also repent of doubting your goodness. We might repent this morning of uh, thinking too highly of ourselves. And Lord, in this case, we might repent of um, assuming the worst about you in spite of all the evidences of your grace in our lives. Father, I pray right now where we sit that there would be a renovation of our hearts and our thinking. That we would consider the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who has loved us and given himself for us. That he is the true bread that has come down from heaven. That he has given life to the world through the sacrifice of his own life on the cross. And that, Lord, if we come to him, if we believe him, we do not hunger or thirst again. That, Lord, we have the fullness, the full measure of your love, your power, your provision, your grace, your salvation, once and for all and forever. In our Savior, received as a gift, Father, let this for us be such good news that we just can't even bear it. The thought of how spoiled we are, of how loved we are. But Lord, let it propel us into greater trust, into deeper faith, so that in the face of trial, some of us are right there right now. Lord, we're in the thick of something terrible. 
that, Lord, our thoughts and our heart and our, our hope would be drawn to Jesus, the great overcomer, the great victor over sin and death and the grave. He is our hope. And therefore, Lord, all of our testing, all of our trials will prove to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of him. Lord, I pray that we would so set our hearts and minds in concrete here, stabilize us so that no matter what, we are firm in the foundation of Jesus. We need it so desperately. Lord, let us learn from Israel so that there might be in us no hardness of heart, but only encouragement and faith and grace. Please, we ask this in Jesus' awesome name. Amen.